Support for A Life of Dogs is brought to you by Royal Canin. Royal Canin offers precise, effective nutrition for dogs based on size, age, breed, and to address specific needs. To learn more about Royal Canin, visit them on the web at royalcanin.com. And by Dogtra, trusted by professionals. Dogtra ensures your training journey with durable training products, equipped with patented, accurate, and intuitive control to ensure the best experience. Join us, and together we can make every dog exceptional. To learn more, call 888-811-9111 or visit dogtra.com. Thanks for joining us for episode 5 of A Life of Dogs. Hopefully you've listened to the first four episodes and you've subscribed to our podcast on your favorite podcast player. If you haven't joined us on Facebook and Instagram, be sure to do so. We've got some pretty cool giveaways going on and we've got some pretty cool content there as well. This is a pretty intriguing episode about cadaver dog teams. And as such, it needs a bit of a disclaimer. So, if you have a limited tolerance for gore, or if you're listening with small children, this may not be the episode for you. For FBI, and as we started working the case, uh, my dog went to this bucket, a uh, five-gallon bucket out in the middle of this field, and um, the dog kept looking in the bucket and sitting, looking in the bucket and sitting, and um, she wouldn't come in there and I'd call her, so I went over there to see, and um, there was a decapitated head in the bucket. From a life of dogs, I'm Jason Perguson, and this is Cautious Closure. The human head in the bucket belonged to Ted Ward, a 46-year-old man who was murdered in Mississippi in March of 2009. Finding a human head isn't something most people want to experience, and definitely not something most people volunteer to do. That is, however, the typical scene for a cadaver dog handler. In this episode, we talk with three different cadaver dog handlers, all of which are volunteers, and all from different backgrounds. One, a small business owner. Another, a lieutenant with a police department in Alabama. The other, an educator and a colonel with the South Carolina National Guard. We start with Colonel Jeff Jordan, who handles a German Shepherd named Trooper. History in the making this morning as Hurricane Katrina is making landfall on the coast of Louisiana. And Dr. Steve Lyons, our hurricane expert, is on board now to talk about its impacts this morning. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Kim. And we're looking at a landfall in southeastern Louisiana, almost, not quite. Um, in New Orleans, uh, bodies hanging out of caskets that the water had knocked. You know, in New Orleans, they bury everybody above the ground. And that wave of water just came in, just blew them over and popped the caskets open, and they're hanging out. And uh, that's then, and of course, some of the very gory, third, fourth stage bloat stage, you know, it's, it's pretty bad. The smell gets pretty bad. And again, you try to find where the wind is and you stand up wind of the person. You try not to stand around it. We worked in, basically worked in the lower ninth ward, exactly where the, the levees broke. Uh, we did have a few missions outside of that um, in some collapse structures outside of it, but primarily in the ninth ward, just sweeping it up, going street to street, and um, 
house to house, checking for human remains, anything that was left, uh, cars uh, that had been rolled and tumbled. By the time I got there, they'd already moved everything out of the streets. So we were searching these big rubble piles that were along the edge of the roads. And, uh, and then, then going of course, some, some collapsed houses and businesses and things like that. Over the years, I had the opportunity to talk with uh, and spend some time with handlers who worked after Katrina. Uh, most of them were uh, live fine dog handlers who were looking for people who are still alive. Um, and basically what, I've, what I was able to sort of ascertain from talking to them was that the the conditions there were drastically different than what most people are accustomed to working in. A lot of them described it as overwhelming. So can you take a minute and sort of talk about what it was like to spend that month, you know, working with a cadaver dog? Yeah, well, everything was toxic. And, you know, we were made very clear that, you know, when you have that flood and you're, uh, everything out of a house is just blown out. And then, of course, you've got human remains in the water. You've got everything you can imagine is the, the sewage and everything is out there in the water. So we knew that things were very toxic. Um, one of the biggest problems we've had, and I like to talk when I teach this class, is, uh, or I teach cadaver dog things, it was the large odor source. Um, you know, pinpointing is, is not as hard as the odor source. As soon as we got out of the trucks, you could smell human decay. And of course, if I could smell it, I know my dogs could smell it. It was very overwhelming, even at the, the deployment, you know, where we were staging, uh, you could smell it. Um, the dogs had a hard time. Uh, we had to take about a day and a half to acclimate them to, we, all right, I know you know where it is. I know you smell it. Now let's go pinpoint it. Let's, uh, we had to get past the, the fact that it was everywhere, and we had to really rely on our pinpointing skills. That, and of course, we trained that way and really had to go rely back on that. We also had problems with... Um, and I like to tell this story when I was teaching that class today that um, I had to put on a Tyvek suit on several occasions. OSHA had us required us to wear Tyvek suits. And I had deduced that I'd never trained my dog that way. I put this whole suit on, gas mask, the whole nine yards, taped up completely, and my dog started barking at me. He couldn't see me. He couldn't smell me. So we had to take the mask off, you know, pull the hood back and play with him and work and this and that. I never trained in that in that condition. Uh, of course, I've, I do it now if the best I can. Uh, the water was toxic. We had to keep the dogs out of the water. Um, we had to bring enough water for ourselves and for the dog. You had to make sure you specifically hydrated that dog. Uh, you didn't want him getting in that water. Um, the heat. Uh, you know, I'm from South Carolina, but nothing uh, can that that Louisiana heat was unbearable. And so we had to really keep an eye on our dogs to. Uh, and we almost had to save them from their cells. You know, the odor was there, and we said, look, that's enough. You've been out here an hour and a half. Let's go take a break. Let's go swimming. Let's be a puppy. Uh, we had to really protect our dogs from the environment as well as ourselves. Some of the stuff that they mentioned was that, you know, it was dead humans, dead animals, dead fish, gasoline, just everything, like you said, the house blew out. So everything is something in somebody's house or garage is, is now. Out of your refrigerator, everything out yeah. of your freezer, uh, the sewage had been, you know, uh, they had this, where we were, there were septic tanks that were, had been blown out of the water or contaminated. So everything was just, you assumed everything was toxic. And then you had the mold and all that other kind of thing, the, that was where well, we had to wear masks in a lot of occasions um, protect ours. Of course, our dogs didn't have any masks like that. And the dog's hazard was upturned um, 
upturned uh, uh, roofs with the nails and all that kind of thing, and we had to deal with that a good bit. We've never trained our dog in boots. I just don't do that. I think they're, uh, my dogs seem to have a lot more dexterity when they don't have anything in their boots, and he's just kind of like when humans walk through stickers, we don't put our foot down on something that hurts. We're going to back off. Dogs are the same way, so we were able to get through that pretty good, but um, the heat was the hardest thing for the dogs to deal with and the contamination. We had to decontaminate our dogs every day and contaminate ourselves and our dogs with, with a solution basically had a bath every day and um that, that they didn't like doing that but it's of course these dogs were going back and crawling in bed with us at night um so you want to make sure that dog's good and clean working in these mass casualty disaster scenes is challenging for cadaver dog teams they work in natural disasters homicides cold cases and even deal with drowning victims. We want to spend a bit here giving you some insight into the type of work these cadaver dog teams do. We return to Kathy Doty, who talks about a very unusual case that she dealt with in Mississippi in 2014. Back to those tornadoes from yesterday, one of the hardest hit places in Mississippi, the town of Louisville, where at least nine people were killed. It is believed a powerful EF4 tornado touched down there. WDSU reporter Travis Mack was there tonight. In April in Mississippi, we had the, uh, in Louisville, Mississippi, there was a tornado. And, um, you know, every case you walk away from, you see, I sit back and think about it for days and I go over and go over. And I, I do make a report on every case. And you, you then start thinking of things you could have done better or, or you know, or you could have changed. Um, but four years ago, we worked um, a case where the tornado um, had, it was very, very, very devastating in Louisville. And uh, a mother, a father, and a seven-year-old child was missing. And um, so our task was they did locate the mother and the father mostly intact, but I, I was really, um, you know, you can read about it all day long, but when you see what a tornado does to a body, it's it's horrific. So everybody's looking for this little seven-year-old boy, and we searched for five days. Um, you know, you can't say anybody's right or wrong, but when we go out, um, we're clearing an area, and that's just as important. It's a whole team effort, so if they give me a 100 acre field or woods we're going to clear it the best we can and at least we can come back and say it's you know 75 percent cleared or 55 percent cleared because it's hard to clear something 100 percent and um so for five days we looked for this little boy and the whole time it was sad because we were never given the area around the house the mother and father were oh you know 200 acres away from the house in a huge field and the father was another uh, 30 you know, acres probably away. So um, and assuming they thought the boy would be further and actually the whole time he was uh, within 50 foot of his house in the backyard covered up in debris and deceased. So it, the sad thing was that it took five days to locate in which other people did when they started clearing the area but much to my surprise, um, my dog, we had a little area of woods in the middle of the field or divided this field with a creek, and um, we were working it, and 
my dog all of a sudden, his behavior changed totally. Um, I could tell he was in scent, but then with all the firemen out there and all the backup people and the great people that offered to help, um, the dog became somewhat aggressive, as I would say. He, he guarded. He wouldn't move. I was confused on what the dog was doing, so I immediately, you know, got the dog, put him on a leash, and put him back in my vehicle um, without a reward, which was one of the biggest mistakes I made. And when I went back to the area, I started looking around, and that's when I discovered we the cadaver was all around us. Um, there was a liver. There was a bladder. There was intestines hung all in the trees. It was... That everybody else walked by there and there was a stench, but nobody noticed what it really was. And it was the dog that, I mean, otherwise this person's body parts and pieces were, would have been left out there because really nobody else identified what it was. Um, and if it wasn't for the dog, we would not, it probably never would have been identified. And then on our team, we have a doctor and she is the one that started saying, oh my God, this is a bladder and this is, human and so that was probably the biggest eye opener I've had in a case it was pretty bizarre and uh, so the coroner he was you know he was overwhelmed as it was and we called him and um, and because we had um, the official people we needed there being a doctor there and some law enforcement um, we pretty much spent two days um GPSing each spot, taking a picture, putting each part in a bag, in a Ziploc bag, and marking it. So um, that's been the most, <laughs> that's been the one case that I would say I've worked the hardest at, and it was, it was pretty tough. But um, but everybody was a great team that was there and worked it out. But the the biggest thing I realized is afterwards is that I did not reward my dog, and the dog was. The dog was correct, and I, I really truly feel like if that dog would have not had that strong change of behavior, and even though he showed some aggression, not that he was going to bite somebody or attack somebody, but, you know, just his uh, knowing your dog and knowing that this is something totally different, but the dog was still communicating clearly, um, I, I think that it would have all been overlooked. Next, we hear from Corey Archer, the police lieutenant from Alabama. As he tells us about the case of Nick Bauer, a 28-year-old Georgia man who went missing during a storm at Talladega Motor Speedway in May of 2013. Well, I've been, I, I was aware of the situation just because of being a race fan and saw it on TV that the guy was missing. Um, and day or two after the race, they, uh, I was at home, got a call uh on my on my business phone and uh, it was the family the family just asked if we had a cadaver dog that was available and if we would be willing to help and what it would cost so uh i told him i told him to give me a few minutes and i called the sheriff's department down there i had some contacts in talladega county sheriff's department uh from working previous races at the racetrack and uh Made some contact with him and asked him if it would be okay if we came down and tried to help uh, locate uh, the victim that was missing. So um, 
they said, sure, come on. Uh, so the next day, well, I called the family back and told them that we'd come out. Um, and then the next day, we went down there to the track and met with some track officials and Cal- Talladega Sheriff's Department uh, deputies. And they showed us where the um, uh, victim had been camping. And directly behind their campground or campsite, uh, there was a, a creek. And it had been raining for a couple of days, so that creek was really rolling. And that's where we, we started our search at. I always worked Katja off-leash, um, and she, she worked better off-leash. So um, we started right there at the campsite, um, right close to the cor- creek, running parallel with the creek, uh, just working in the area. We was actually headed south uh, with the uh, current. And we probably worked approximately half mile or so down that creek area, and uh, Katja threw her head up, and got her body language got real rigid and she made a, a 90 degree turn towards the creek and actually jumped down into the middle of the creek and just started swimming circles and she just swam constant circles probably for two or three minutes um so that's when i went ahead and rewarded her and um called in the divers so they brought a dive team in yes how deep was this creek uh, in that area where she was indicating, it was probably five to six foot deep. Um, so the divers worked that area pretty good. It was it was cold and it was visibility was terrible. They said you couldn't see anything actually diving. So um, and so we of course pulled Katja out and they pulled the divers out after an hour or so, and then um, later on that afternoon is when. We got the call saying that they had located him um, and he had drowned. Being a cadaver dog handler and finding deceased victims is tough. But as Jeff Jordan explains, sometimes the hard part is finding nothing. Don Dick and Harry's got a real pretty dog and I can buy all this canine stuff and dress up like a canine guy. You get out there and you, you, you don't find anything. Or what's worse is you say something's there and it's not there. And that's bad, 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 bad. Somebody goes to jail that shouldn't be going to jail or some fire department or some EMD guy has spent a lot of money to bring in a lot of resources out there on something that ain't there. And that's bad news. That's that's kind of heavy. And not everybody can handle that. You know, you want your dog to succeed. You want to find something so bad. But if it's not there, it's not there. Don't. I've seen people do it the other way. And, and uh, they they give yourself and they give a canine community a bad name when they come out there and they're not prepared or they're not dogs not good enough and they want to not admit it you know in the canine world as you know we've got a lot of strong personalities and a lot of people who think they know everything and and their way or the highway and so you got to put your pride aside and do what's right in everything with this a lot of times you don't see what you're looking for there might have been a body there you know, and, and I've had to do that on occasion. I've got sheriffs, I've got I've got U.S. Marshals and FBI all looking at me. All right, you're going to make that call. You know, and there's nobody there. Maybe there have been some human remains there uh, or there's been transport or whatever it may be, 
Are you willing to make that call? Because you know you do, and you mess up. It's a lot of world, a lot of bad's going to happen to you, or somebody. Somebody's going to spend a lot of money, a lot of time and effort if you're not right. You know, and so that's pretty heavy. You got to be willing to take on that responsibility. Yeah, man, we'll have a really good trained dog, so you trust your dog. So my mind frame is always very positive that we're going to go out there and. If nothing else, that we're going to clear an area because a lot of these cold cases is information that probably has just been recently given and maybe an inmate. And um, so you're kind of skeptical on the area. But I do not, um, a case I just worked about a month ago, I, I don't want for somebody to bring me in and say, this is the spot. I want the officials to go in and look at the area and when they come back out for them to give me a very large area to work, I, I want my dog to naturally go into a spot and naturally give me a change of behavior or um, an indication on a specific spot. Cadaver dog teams not only have a pretty rough job, as we hear from Kathy Doty, they have to do it in some pretty rough places as well. It seems as though people who are trying to hide bodies don't, don't necessarily do it in the most convenient places. Can you sort of talk about the environment you have to work in, and particularly in Mississippi? Um, I know in the summertime, it's it, you know I've done some seminars and stuff down there, and a lot of training. Um, they'd be pretty rough on you. Well, it is. It's it's um, and again, each time we go out, um, here's what I tell them: There's some ladies that train with me and have just recently recertified or certified a new dog, and they're much younger. So um, I'm I'm glad that I can go and flank them. But the conditions are really bad as far as our, we have a really high humidity, the hot, hot days. We time our dogs from the minute we take our dog out of the vehicle and let them go to the bathroom, um, give them water, and then start an area. We try to time and watch our dogs. Before we go on the field, we try to train in the same type of environments to see how long our dogs are able to work in those environments and still be able to work properly that they could give us information. Um, and in most cases, we find about 45 minutes is really pushing it. So uh, we, we're going in areas that we are snake-infested, of course. Um, you know, we have a lot of water moccasins, um, lots of snakes here, and the ticks and the bugs are just unbelievable. So we have to really spray down a lot and... Um, and be prepared to wear the proper gear. Um, I use GPS collars on my dogs now because in some of the areas we go in, or a lot of the areas we go in, it's very, very thick. The thicket is really bad. Um, we wear leather gloves because of the thorns. Um, but we try to keep a close eye on the dogs. But there's times that in the thicket you don't see the dogs. So my GPS keeps me in the right direction. And it also lets me know when that dog stops for too long. If the dog's, I have it on a 30 second. So if the dog stops for more than 30 seconds, it, a little alarm goes off. So, you know, could my dog be in trouble or has the dog located a source that we're looking for? So we're in swampy, muddy, wet, humid, hot, all the good stuff. All right. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty tough. So when we work cases, and I started doing this 10 years ago, I always, always bring two dogs. So I can keep one dog in the air-conditioned vehicle, and I can constantly swap them out. 
Um, and the GPS, what helps me on that is I can go, if we need help, depending on how far they want us to go in areas, whether it's 400 acres or just 20 acres, um, I can go to areas now that uh, the second GPS caller on a different dog and I can cover other areas. So that GPS has been a wonderful tool for us, and I think it has saved um, probably some of our dogs that, there may be a very heavy thicket area, but you don't realize on the other side could be a very busy road. So it shows the, you know, shows the roads and everything. So it it kind of keeps all of us safe. Um, but uh, our conditions are, yeah, they're pretty horrific. They're they're pretty tough. So we have to carry a lot of water with us. Um, we always have a medical flanker and a law enforcement flanker, and then we do try to get somebody else that's familiar with the area if possible a fireman or somebody that um, will also go in the field with us. I think that working forensic cases, um, I, I people have no idea that when I go into a house that I can, uh, if somebody had been murdered in that house or in a vehicle or in a barn or a shed, or, um, that our dogs can go out there and pick up the scent of body fluids, uh, blood, and that dog can give us good information there. It's not necessarily a body there, but a body has been there. So I've worked cases in uh, vehicles that have been burned and the dog, uh, although there were no bones in there, um, the dogs can locate that. Um, they, can, they can also locate a burned victim in a house that a house has been burned down. I don't think people in general realize um, the importance of a dog going into the field in areas. Now, everybody has to, they don't think about it. We are given areas when we get called out. We, we go to a command post and we are assigned areas to work, whether it be a house, a building, storage, a vehicle, uh, fields, woods, water. We are given a specific area to work. And if the dog gives us something else and tries to take us another direction, we do follow. But I'm going to say 70% of our cases, our dogs cleared the area and gave us good information. There was no body there. There was, you know, so there was not, not a body buried there. There was nothing, there was nothing that took place there. But I don't think we get enough credit for that as well because that's just as hard a work. We're out in that field just as long in the hot sun and the, in the horrific conditions. And, and so clearing areas helps you move on to another area or to somebody else that might have more information that could help us go to the correct area. So I don't think we're recognized a lot of times for clearing areas that they give us and there's nothing there. A lot of times it's looked at as we, um, you know, the dog was just out there running around. I mean, we hear all these comments and we hear the comments when we're in the field with some of the flankers or, you know, whoever they are. Um, and, and it's disheartening, but, but at the same time, you know, we, we keep going. Um, so I'm going to, I think that's one of the things that in general people don't understand that, um, how much work it is, how much training it is. It's not like we just have a dog that they think, well, it's a dead body. A dog could smell it. You know, heck, we could smell a dead body. Well, that's true in a lot of cases, but 
it takes a lot of training. It takes months and months. It takes a lot of hours. It takes years. And, and just because your dog is certified, we're not, we're not done. We still train every weekend and we still, you know, are out in all conditions. Um, and, and, and I don't think that that's always, uh, recognized be sure to stay with us when we return we talk to jeff jordan about one of the most unusual finds he's had the doctor pathfinder is designed to meet doctor's legendary standard for quality and performance the pathfinder is for serious dog trainers and owners who demand the most in working hunting and competitive environments track up to 21 dogs share locations playback data and create customizable geofence alerts. With an incredibly fast two-second update rate and powerful zoom capability, the Pathfinder tracking feature provides greater live action detail and accuracy when you're in the field. To learn more about the Dogtra Pathfinder or other great Dogtra products, visit Dogtra.com. Royal Canin delivers precise nutritional solutions so your dog can perform at their very best level. To achieve a perfect balance of nutrients for each dog, they rely on an extensive network of canine experts from across the globe, including veterinarians, universities, dog professionals, and their own research development center in France. Royal Canin helps your dogs train and perform at their full potential. To learn more about Royal Canin and the nutritional solutions they have to offer your dogs, visit them online at royalcanin.com. So what's the strangest situation you found yourself in with a cadaver dog? <laughs> this fella was, uh, I guess you could call him, he was the village idiot. And he was always calling 911 for anything. Toothaches, I need a ride across town, I want to kill myself. But of course, they got to follow up. Uh, they followed this, They he called in once, said, I'm going to kill myself, I'm going to do it, I'm doing it this time. And so they go to the guy's house, there's a suicide note on his front door. I'm going to the state park. I'm going to do myself in and all these other things. Um, so they go to the state park. There's his truck with another suicide note under the, the windshield wiper. I'm going in the forest and I'm going to kill myself, give my brother my truck. So the police uh, and the law and the search and rescue guys go out and look for this fellow. It's real hot, dead of summer in South Carolina. It was a hundred and something degrees that week. They searched for three days and couldn't find him. I'm not knocking police, but sometimes they're good. they're real good looking for bad guys. They're not real good looking for suicide or mental cases in some cases. So they assumed after about three days this guy was dead, and so they call us in, and uh, we get there and we are you know assessing the scene. It was really it was the middle of the day. It was just too hot for the dogs. I, I'm not going to risk my dog for a, I'm not trying to sound rude for a deceased person and, and or my men. It was real hot. So we formed a little hasty search, and we kind of deduced, based on knowing what lost people do, that or mentally ill people, this guy left so many notes he wanted to be found. He did not, or if, he did not want to just go out in the woods and die, and nobody ever found him, or he would never have left all these notes. So uh, we formed a hasty search, knowing that he's going to follow the path of least resistance. He wasn't looking for the cop. You know, he might, yeah, mentally ill, but he wasn't running from the cops. He wasn't scared. He wanted to go back there and die. So uh, to make a long story short, we search for about two hours and I look up the top of a hill and I see uh, a clearing and there's a person's body laying there uh, and fit the description, blue jeans, no shirt on, no shoes. As I get closer, I could see beer cans, actually it's Coors Light. 
beer, bo- beer pill bottles all around him. He's kind of leaning up on the tree, covered in ants. And then, of course, I got that smell as I got closer, that strong urine odor of a uh, kind of an early, early stage of death. And so I'm on my walkie-talkie. And, of course, you've got to be careful what you say on that walkie-talkie. You don't know who's on the other end. There's something interesting here. I'm going to go check it out. And I get closer to the guy, and I'm kneeling down. He's supposed to have a tattoo. I'm looking for it to make proper identification. And then he breathes. He takes a real deep breath. That's about the scariest I've ever been. Um, I forgot all radio protocol then, used a lot of colorful metaphors to get people down there to help me. And I think I jumped about three yards off of that guy. And he was still alive. And uh, we got a search. Then it became a recovery, a rescue. And we got the rescue guys down in there, started pumping IV. And it was too thick to carry him to get a four-wheeler and all the other G-Wiz stuff down there. So we had to just form a chain. It was so hot, you can only go 30 or 40 yards and pass him on. And uh, finally, we got him to the top of the hill, and there was a helicopter there waiting on him. As far as I know, he's still living. His brother didn't get the truck. His brother was a little mad at him. But uh, uh, that was the strangest case and probably the scariest thing. You know, I, I never expected... Uh, what I considered even smelled dead, even looked dead, he breathed and gave a real deep sigh. And yeah, I used a lot of bad words that day. <laughs> it scared me to death. It's been a long-standing belief that cadaver dogs, after finding bodies, become depressed. So we decided to ask Jeff Jordan about this. I've heard this going around the community for some time over the years, particularly amongst cadaver dog handlers. I just want your your perspective or your take on it. I have my own, but I want to get yours. Uh, and that is that um, the cadaver dogs, want, you know, working in operational environments, finding dead bodies after dead bodies after dead bodies, that the dogs become uh, somewhat depressed, I guess, or uh, tend to act depressed. What's your idea or opinion on that? Uh, people ask me that all the time. Does your dog get sad? Absolutely not. He gets to play at the end of this thing. It's, it's play. It has nothing. He doesn't have the kind of emotion. Now, I, he may get sad if he sees me sad. You know, I, you know, he's, we're a team, and he can kind of sense my dad doesn't feel good about this. But he, as long as he gets that toy, he doesn't care. I mean, I'm not trying to sound uh, not sensitive, but the dog doesn't have the same kind of emotions like we do. And uh, he gets that toy. He's happy as he can be. He and he's ready to go to the next one. You get that dog with that proper drive, that's all he lives for. You can't watch TV around this nuthead at night because he's always wanting to play. And so, uh, no, nah, he doesn't get yeah, sad. Was, that was my experience with a cadaver dog. She wanted to go find it, and she wanted to, you know, it was it, it was just as fun for her to find a dead body as it was for a drug dog to find a bag yeah, of weed. And that's that's how they do it. It's not, it, it, it's not emotional to them. Right. It, it's just that that smell brings fun people right. say does your dog smell drugs like oh yeah he's a dog he just doesn't know to tell me about it <laughs> you know he, i've never he, told him he's to not, tell me about he's that. not a snitch no he's not a snitch <laughs> and he's not gonna tell on you even though the dogs find this work to be enjoyable it does have a profound effect on the handlers two of that massive cadaver dog search at the old florida school for boys in okeechobee today. none of us are heroes i mean that's not what it's about it's about us all being a team effort and all the people that put in long hours and times. But um, but unbelievable, over the years, there's been a handful of different families that I guess seek me out. Um, 
they didn't call me or talk to me, but they actually sent me a thank you card. And I, I have kept those cards because it, you know, I know they were in pain and they were suffering and hurting until they found emotionally everybody was, but they, they took the time to reach out to me as well. And, and I find that that was, um, I don't know, that just was, it just made my day. It just, it really made my day. I can remember cases I've worked that I kept my cool, but on the way home, I, yeah, I mean, I just cried. I just could not believe, you know, that there are cruel people in the world that do these horrific acts. But um, those cases um, that really, really bothered me were young people. Um, uh, there was a young lady, um, ROTC young lady, just graduated from high school and disappeared. That high school graduate was Shambrika Brewer, an 18-year-old that was murdered by Travis McLeod, an ex-boyfriend, in April 2005. We found her actually the very first day, and... Um, the condition she was in, how she was beaten and um, left naked um, in, in the position in a ditch she was left purposely. It just, um, it, it was, it just broke my heart to think that somebody could do this to this young, vibrant woman that, you know, her, she was only 18 years old. Um, I've, I've had a lot of people ask me questions about that on death, and seeing a body um, does not, for some reason, it doesn't bother me because I feel I try to turn it around and feel like I'm bringing closure. Um, and their drownings, uh, you know, the whole families are used to there on the river, and everybody's feelings and emotions are intense, and. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, I, if I know I'm working water, I'm going to bring a dog that does not bark. Um, and that's just my choice. You know, if you have a dog out there and it's in the boat going up down the river and the dog starts barking, everybody hears it. It's just everybody's feelings are it's so emotional. And if you have a dog that is silent, in some cases it works really, really well. Um, and drownings, you know, I've been there when they pull up the bodies and all, and those are also very sad. But I, I just have a, a good feeling because I did bring closure, and, and we knew that there was a, a person in the water. And um, But then I will say that I've worked other cases that um, it's not that I don't have emotions about it, but um, I just felt good that we found the body. Uh, but we did know then that we were looking for the rest of it, the body. So, um, and I sent the dog on, and we did locate the body, I think, within 10 minutes out in the woods. Um, so, in that case, uh, you know, I, I kept professional. It, it's just hard when you know it's a child or a very young person. Those cases, um, you know... When, when I leave, I, I can, I, you know, then it hits me. I, I keep my uh, emotions intact and professional while I'm on the case. But when, uh, when I leave, it is very, very emotional. So you had Kutch for a couple of years. You're looking at possibly training another shepherd. Yes. For cadaver. Um, 
of all the search and rescue dogs out there trailing use are um, all the stuff that's cool and sexy and finds people alive uh, what makes you want to work a cadaver dog two things uh, first thing there's not many of them out there that's doing it and doing it right um, and there's a need for it uh, the, the need to provide that service is important to me uh, because like I said, number one, you want to you want to be able to put closure to somebody's um, situation, uh, traumatic or bad situation. You want to be able to say, "Hey, we've located your missing relative, uh, even though they're they're not they even though they are deceased. At least you can uh, have the sense to know that they have been located, and you can go through the grieving process and the burial process and that kind of thing." Because all of this is about our future. Um, my goal is not just bring closure to families, but it's also to help the younger generation. Because when we're not here, there's very few people that are really young that's interested in this. And um, so, you know, my doors are always open to anybody. You can come camp out at my house and come train with us. Um, because it's the next generation that's going to have to bring this up for us and, and you know, take over. So. Yeah. Educating them is important. You know, it, it's hard. It's tough seeing that first body. It's tough seeing that first murder case or homicide. It's uh, it's pretty tough, but... Two parts of it, you know, and, and one of the fun of handling dogs is to, you know, your dog did something that you've trained it to do. And I think anybody who works a dog just gets pumped when their dog finds something that you want it to find. And then you see the human remain part of it. You know, I'm a dad, I'm a granddad, and I'm a husband and all the above. And you see someone whose body, someone who's been murdered and their body's just disposed out in the woods. It, it kind of gets to you a little bit. You know, I, I always think about the humanity. How could someone do that to another person? Um, but then again, it just kind of turns out to be a business. I hate to say it, you don't get used to it, but you get kind of you departmentalize it in your brain. You said, this is my job. This is what I'm doing. Now, of course, children bother you. Um, teenagers certainly, certainly bother you. But some stuff I've seen just doesn't, look, just doesn't look real. You know, it's like something you see on a movie. You know, it just, you know, I can't believe I'm seeing this. Now, my job is to find them, then I can walk off. I'm not a crime scene guy. I don't have to stick around. Uh, sometimes I do to help, but... Um, your departmentalism in your brain, but I, I can still remember my first one. I, I can remember my first one, and uh, it startled me. I, of course, it's different than seeing a body in a funeral home. You know, they're all fixed up and laying there, and oh, they're so pretty, and they're so, he looks so good. Well, you don't see them like that out in the bush, especially they've been laying out there a couple weeks, or, you know, and they've had animals, this and that. And you can't describe the smell. Uh, that, that's something that I don't care what anybody tells you, you don't get used to that. I tried rubbing Vicks Vapor Rub under my nose one time. It just smelled like a dead person with Vicks Vapor Rub on me. I saw that on a movie and uh, thought I'd try it. Didn't work. Mm -hmm. Didn't work at all. Uh, you know, you don't hang around it. You just do your job and you then you go back and you start thinking, you know, that person, they bring closure now. That family, there's that body. I've, I've helped solve this case in a search and rescue thing. You, know, you say, we found the body for the family, you know, and, and I think, what if that were one of my loved ones? I would want somebody like me to go out there and find it and bring some closure if not you know they're if they're, you can't find a body where are they you know that poor family's got to live with that for a long long time but that's how i kind of get over some of the sites i've seen 
Well, I always hope, um, especially if it's um, a cold case, which seems to be um, more what we, we get as cold cases. So, of course, I, I want to find. I, I am so desperate to help bring closure to a family because this is a family somewhere out there that's missing their child, whether it's a drug head, whether it's who, whatever kind of person this may be. It's not always just a kidnapping situation that a, a 17-year-old female is missing, um, but it doesn't matter what the case is. I hope and always pray that we give a hundred percent that we give all we can give on that particular day. And, um, you know, I always hope that there's some kind of closure for that family. That's, um, to me, that's the most important thing. Once again, thanks for joining us for episode five of a life of dogs. We want to send a special thanks out to Kathy Doty, Corey Archer, and Colonel Jeff Jordan for sharing their stories. If you like this episode, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you're using. Music for this episode by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to stay tuned to next month's episode because we got something really special coming your way.